welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church. We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who live and work in the city of Glasgow, and it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things. Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives, so as well as listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning, or get involved in one of our missional communities, which are across the city throughout the week. Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. You've joined us in the middle of a series, we've begun a few weeks ago, looking at the book of Genesis. So we are in Genesis uh, 1 to 2 at the beginning, where we are just reflecting on the fact that God is good, and at the very start of our Bibles, it sets the, the arc for the entire Old Testament, indeed the whole scriptures, that is, God is good and wants to be known, and make his presence felt, and his intimate presence felt, in the whole world. The whole world was his, meant to be his temple, and that's what we thought about in, in the first uh, section of that. Then we, we hung out again in chapters 1 and 2, just on the theme of God is good, and it's all spiritual in some ways. We looked at everything, the diversity of life he, he created, and we said, isn't God good? And shouldn't we celebrate that? And our spirituality takes that on board as we celebrate and notice the goodness of God seen in his plentiform ways in, in creation. And then, of course, last week it was Genesis 3, the fall. And we were defining sin as this propensity of humans to mess things up, to by mess things up by doing what's right in their own eyes. And we're looking at the pattern that we see at the beginning of scripture that gets repeated time and time again of seeing. Adam and Eve see the, the fruit, the forbidden fruit, and take and as a pattern that leads to, uh, to destruction. And uh, then this week, we find ourselves with the situation of, of what to do and what to think when this human propensity to mess things up goes viral. It's not just one or two people, but it starts to go viral in a culture in the world. What to do then? We've just we've skipped out on chapters four and five. We have not read them. Um, just a quick overview on chapter four of Genesis, if you've forgotten. We were, it's life outside the garden, so Adam and Eve have been banished, and we have the first children, and we're thinking we're not really that uh, optimistic about how things are going to go outside of the garden, and we're not disappointed in that, if that was our expectation, because we have the first murder, where Cain and Abel, Abel's offering is deemed more pleasing to God, Cain doesn't like that, Cain, Cain's plow turns into a, a sword or a weapon, and he, he murders his brother, um, so we see what we hope wouldn't happen, but kind of assume would roll out in, in their relationship. We see the first murder in, in that text. There's a bit of a Hollywood ending uh, at the end of chapter four. With the, uh, then we have the arrival of Seth. So there's a slight ray of hope at the end of Seth, who in some ways is a, is a bright light in a, in a dark moment of, well, maybe things will continue. Maybe it won't be so bad. Then we, we go into... Genesis 5, which is a genealogy mostly, and 
in effect, it kind of demarks different sections of the Bible and kind of has the feeling of carrying the narrative forward. There's a sense of hope about chapter 5, that people are living quite long, and oh, the, the, the lines of descent are continuing, and so we read it, and we're, the, the reader is prepared to actually, maybe things are going to be okay, the lines are going to continue, living a long time, and then we get to chapter 6, and we're like, oh dear, here we are, this story, of, and it's the story of Noah and the flood. I wonder if you sometimes find it hard or confusing to be a Christian in the culture that we find ourselves in today. Does it ever feel like there are so many factors that are creating a landslide away from the Christian faith? Perhaps even to the point that you doubt it's even possible to make a dent for good or for God in this world that seems so anti uh, in this moment. Or do you ever just find it difficult to be a follower of Jesus, uh, to be a, a good follower of Jesus in your workplace, in your home, or just in, in, in your everyday life? You feel like, actually, I feel like the, the culture sets the tone for me, or I know there's compromise out there, but I, I feel like I'm just a part of it. I don't feel like I'm doing anything different. Do you, do you ever just feel like, does this work? Does this, does this faith thing, how does this faith thing work? Well, one of the questions that I think that Genesis brings up is in this section is, how do we live well in a culture that is bending away from God? Or to put it more specifically in, in, the, in the context of, of Genesis passage we just heard read, is a question of how do we live well in a culture of decay? When, when everybody seemingly is doing what's right in their own eyes, how do we live well as Christians? In that. Um, and we'll, so, offer essentially what we're going to do is two realities we want to hold before us and, and one call. So, that's what we'll get to two realities and, and one uh, call. The, the first reality in Genesis is, is probably the most obvious one, which was that the whole culture, what humans had made of the, the opportunity and the stuff that God had given them, the whole culture was uh, in decay. We might say in general that Genesis has a pretty low view of the human heart or the human condition. Um, verses 1 to 2 of chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took them as their wives. And you're like, that's that pattern all over again. People just seeing and taking what they want and so there's a sense here, don't ask me to explain the, the, the sons of Nephilim and the mighty sons of God. <laughs> That's a whole different sermon that I'm not even sure I'm prepared to answer. But the, what you can assume from this passage is actually, oh, here we have it, this all familiar thing of male violence and domination of the sexes uh, kicking in from uh, early on in this text. This pattern, they see, they take, they see, they take time and time again. And the, it says, it goes on in verse 5, the Lord, Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the, in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There's that sense of, remember we define this propensity, it just seems, it just pops up and the diagnosis or the critique here is that, yeah, this, this, this humanity it was just every intention has this propensity towards evil. 
And other things that are noted in Genesis as part of the decay include violence. The earth was corrupt in verse 11 in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. And God saw and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. The earth is filled with violence. And we are invited to notice the critique of this world, of this culture now in its fallen state. And notice the the critique of the sin, and remember the sin is this propensity to mess things up by doing what's right in their own eyes. This critique of sin is more than individuals just messing up, individual mistakes. It's saying here, these humans have made mistakes, but now it's created a web, a web of mistakes and interrelationships and this connection with the land, with the animals, with with everything has been more or less screwed up by um, by these decisions. But it's now not just individuals. We've now got a system. We've we've now got systemic uh, proliferation of of evil and structures. It's not just one human action. It's, It's the whole... Uh, system that is broken and Genesis 6 leaves the listeners to work out all of the implications of this extraordinary story uh, rather than giving us all the answers and just maybe spelling it out for us they're left, the readers left to work out the implications by putting themselves in the story like how did this all come to happen and is the unthinking submission to the snake is that happening again is this on repeat is this happening? Is, is that why this is going on? Is, is this what's going on in the world? And they're encouraged to, to be drawn into this uh, critique. There's a thing I've been reading a wee bit about recently, and some of you will know a lot more about it than me, called critical theory, which sometimes is, I think it's helpful for us to recognize. Critical theory involves systems of thought which philosophers, cult, cultural analysis of all different sorts and types Uh, used to critique oppressive uh, power structures. We have critical feminist theories, we have critical race theories. And sometimes, rightly, we need to be, we can't be uncritical in just adopting some of the theories and movements that come about. But sometimes I think we get too nervous of thinking through what they're trying to get at. Because critical theory is trying to look at systems and structures in the world that are trying to oppress, that are trying to hold back, and, and critical race is, is a good example of that. Now, there might be ideas in particular theories that may be Christian, maybe not, but their actual goal is to step back and, and try and ask hard questions of society to say, what's going on here? What's going on here? And um, so I, I, somebody likened uh, the work of Augustine to... Uh, a, a version of critical theory. I don't even know if that's true. For one, I don't know why I did this, but on holiday to Mallorca, I decided to take as, as poolside reading um, Augustine's The City of God. Terrible idea. It is, it is not poolside reading. Uh, I read a few pages and I was like, this stuff is flipping heavy. But The City of God is this dense book that Augustine, that I understand, it, he, he wrote it in response to the, the sacking of Rome and the way Christians were pinned down by many in the society. It's your fault that Rome got sacked. And, and he was writing this in response going, no, 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 no. It's actually thanks to the Christians that there's been some the grace and good things in, in some of a horrendous situation. The real fault is your Roman imperial power, your systems, your idolatry, your, your everything, and just goes to town. And basically is a defense in some ways of the Christian faith. 
but he absolutely goes to town on this imperial might and all the destruction that this power has created. Because he's asking and he's provoking things, what needs to stop? What's wrong? And it's, and it's the sort of questions that are hard to ask to kind of try and take a stand back from culture whenever we're a part of the culture. Now, even to start analyzing culture, we need to assume, particularly from a Christian point of view, we get our posture right from the start. Here, I don't think we can assume that. We are not the high and mighty ones who have a, a perfect sort of understanding of the way things should be and stand aside from culture looking at it. We're in amongst it, going like, we're, we're a part of this. What's right? What's wrong? What needs to stop? And a posture of servility to our, our world and, and, and recognition that we are not superior, we're part of the problem. Because Genesis asks us not to ignore the culture, the world that we have created. And that certainly was the case in this first account of story. It invites us to be wise and curious about the systems that are ebbing away at life today. Some would... Uh, some would, I don't know where your mind goes to in some of these things, but mine went to the growing collective loss that I hear reported of joy and enjoyment in the modern secular world. Um, and some people, some philosophers like Charles Taylor um, would attribute uh, this to something which is called expressive, one of the factors is expressive individualism, which is a version of the modern self, how we build our sense of identity, who we are. Now, you, you, if you've never heard of expressive individualism, that's not a problem. You've probably felt it. You've probably experienced it in how people describe themselves or the relationship to who they think they are in the world. It, it captures this idea that the most authentic person is the one who expresses outwardly what they feel inwardly. Like they express publicly what they feel inwardly. And uh, society, the, the enemy is society has forced me into a certain way, and actually that's a bad thing. And it's the discovery of who I really feel that I am. It's a, it's, it's a heavily psychological model that has come apparently from the times of Sigmund Freud in particular, that, that what we feel on the inside should get expressed publicly because that's who we are, and that's how we define ourselves. And there's, maybe there's a hint of it in the biblical motif of Cain who goes off to make the first city. I'm going to, you know, independent of God, I'm going to make a name for myself or the, the, the power of, of Babylon where, again, they're making a name for themselves. I don't know. But it's, it's not an idea that's in itself totally incompatible with Christianity. Um, freedom of the will, I think we want to say, is, is very important. <laughs> the disciples are not coerced into believing things like that's that's not a good thing like christianity will celebrate the freedom of our will to choose uh, and so if, if expressive individualism encourages that it's a, it's a good thing but as well as that um an authenticity is good right we don't want to be hypocrites we're warned time and time again not to be a hypocrite you know inside is one thing and outside another so again authenticity is a good thing but there's at least two problems with this secular, self-made person. And one is that Christianity acknowledges something in the inner life can be wrong and actually does not, is not right to be expressed. It doesn't assume everything that we feel has a right to find public expression and actually invites us to be suspicious of our human hearts without thwarting um, um, anything good within us. 
Uh, Christianity also says our identity isn't self-constructed and is much more rich and complex and is given in terms of our relationship with God as beloved ones or our relationship to the land, our community, our families, <laughs> who we are. You know, if we ask the question, maybe, I don't know, say 100 years ago, who is Stephen Crothers? It, probably the answer I might give is, well, I'm William and Sheila's son, and my sister's Joanne, and, you know, I, they start talking about the community. Whereas now I'll tell you, well, I'm this, I'm that, and, you know, I'm, we start talking about our achievements and our, about our preferred self, or here's my Instagram, that's who I am on a good day. And do you get that? We, we're not. The, the, the biblical sense is actually, our, it's much more rich than that. We are loved ones with, with so many different layers. Anyway, it's not to get lost in abstract concepts, but recognize and, and, and not ignore things that are not working. And in, in a nutshell, the question is, what's not, what's not working in our world today? And you, you might find your own list of things of just, this is, this is broken, this is broken. There's probably a long list of things that aren't working in our world at the minute. We need to be suspicious of the empty words of building our own world, our own identity, doing what's right, um, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. All these thoughts that actually need, that aren't proven to work out so well on the happiness front. Whatever else we might say about this world we live in, and you might even want to highlight some areas of progress and hope just to give us some good news, but whatever else we might say, in this moment in Genesis, the vain hope of Genesis 5 with the genealogy has been shattered. And decreation awaits as the waters of judgment in the familiar story are about to flood the earth. The reality then was that the whole world or culture was in decay. And yet, over this decaying world, the depiction of Yahweh God was, was, was not of an angry, capricious, vengeful God who just wanted to, to take them out, but rather the, the picture he, in verse uh, 6 is of a grieving parent. And it says that the Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth, and it, it grieved him to his heart. It's, it's a picture of, of just a, a sense of grief at what humanity had done by doing what's right in their own eyes. Maybe that's a bit like, maybe that sounds facetious, but like every good parent when they say, I'm not angry, I'm just sad. <laughs> and you're like, just made me feel worse. But there is a sense here, is a grieving heart of God over the world that he has made. So the first, that's the first reality, that this, this, there's a critique of this world that is, that is in decay. But there is a second reality, and the second reality, I think, is, is actually much more important. The second reality is, that, and, and, and I wonder if this is what you got from the story of Noah whenever, if you've grown up, you know, with the story and you've made the boats. I, I don't know. But anyway, the second reality is that God is merciful and promises to find another way other than total annihilation. We find this moment where God changes his mind um, seemingly. I add seemingly because usually when you say God changes your mind, it's probably not uh, advised theologically, but it seems like God changes his mind because of Noah. So the Lord says, I will blot out the man who, or out man whom I have created from the face of the land, of the land, man and animals creeping things for birds of heaven, for I'm sorry that I made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And Noah is described as a righteous and blameless one. The two 
Hebrew words mean quite similar things, really. It's sometimes um, translated as righteous, and, and like righteous, unhelpfully in our mind, kind of connotes the sort of idea of perfect, or maybe has a technical term, but it, it simply means, it could be as easily translated as faithful, to describe somebody who is uh, living in right relationship with God, their family, and their community. Is, is what that word means. The word for blameless means a person of integrity, wholly committed to God and family. So it's, it's a similar idea, a sense of integrity. Um, but Noah is living well. He's declared as righteous and, and blameless in the midst of all the dec- decay that is around him. So there's maybe something to lodge just in our brains about a vision for how we live well with Noah in, in this example provisionally. But then the familiar story of the flood ensues. And this is where I'm not so sure it makes as great a children's story as we uh, sometimes imagine. Um, imagine the cries of mothers and fathers and over their sons and daughters who don't make it into the ark. <laughs> These are, this is a brutal reality that is painted if you're not the ones that make it into the ark. It's not pleasant and it raises many questions but we have the details of this ark being pitched among them that are that are given to be made and obeyed the creatures of every kind two by two bringing up your sunday school uh, are, are all happen the mention of noah's sons indicates a sort of another a, a sign of hope that there's a line of descent we have shem ham and japheth so there's a sense of okay there's going to con- life will go on but the deluge is unleashed the floods come and they cover the greatest mountains and um, God enacts his judgment. Is God violent? This text refuses to accuse God of violence, but equally refuses to restrict God in his judgment to restrain evil and subdue it. And then we find in chapter 8, God remembers Noah. And he offers the most unilateral promise to uphold and not to destroy all of life ever again. And Noah built an altar to the Lord, taking some of the offerings to say thank you. And it pleased the Lord. And this promise goes, as long as the earth endures, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. And then we have this articulation of fruitfulness, of blessing, language of blessing as for you be fruitful and increase in number multiply on the earth and increase upon it then God said to Noah and his sons with him I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants and after you with every living creature and it goes on in verse 12 of chapter 9 this is a sign of the covenant I'm making between you and every living creature with you and covenant for all generations to come I've set my rainbow in the clouds, and it'll be a sign of the covenant between me and the urn, or compassion for the human situation. Most of them point to just random, capricious gods looking out for their own interests. But one of the striking comparisons of the biblical account of the flood is Yahweh God's concern for humanity to flourish. And his absolute commitment to creation and humanity to find a way in his mercy for them to flourish. And there is a very real sense here, and this might sound strange to put it like this, that Yahweh God in this moment is willing to put up with humanity in all of their stubbornness. 
the bit around eating. That wasn't part of the story, eating meat and animals. That wasn't part of the, the story at the start. And it's like, I'll let you do that under these conditions. And there's, a, there's just a sense here of this holy God just mercifully just working with a stubborn humanity who continually revert to what they want to do in their own eyes. He will find a way to steward and carry the blessing forward regardless of humanity's worst. And the first, if the first reality in Genesis 4 to 6 is this culture is decaying in many ways, but I think the bigger picture reality in Genesis 8 going forward is this reality that God is merciful and he will find a way. And that's the second reality, to hold. The, the, the culture is one of decay, but the, the greater reality is God is absolutely committed um, to find a way to bless again through mercy, which leads to this sense of call where God's mercy leads to a new movement of living well with him, which we find in the story. So this is when the moment of the, the ark um, comes to rest on the mountain, Mount Ararat. And this little moment, as we might imagine, is this is a new moment. This is, this is like, ah, the decreation has happened and the recreation has happened and we have a, a, something on top of a mountain. We know mountains are significant encounter, places where God encounters. It's almost like, well, Noah is like the new Adam and he's on top of a mountain. There's a new, there's a wee Edenic moment at the top and, and it's all starting over again. And there's a sense of actually, Noah as a new Adam is going to start a new movement coming out of the back of God's mercy. And yet, we didn't read this, but at the end of chapter 9, it presents us with this sense of realism, just to, in case we get too, our hopes up, any sense of utopianism. There's this clunky bit of the Noah story that we should leave out when we're talking about our kids, where Noah gets drunk and things go a bit ugly, and of all of a sudden, this new movement has just started, and you're like, we're back here again. Through God's patience, it would be some time before the full extent of God's mercy would show up in the life, death, and resurrection of his son. Taking upon himself the curse of sin, which was death, and instead of a culture of death and punishment, he offers forgiveness, and he offers mercy, which then led to a countercultural movement of disciples who would go by his name. And their hearts would get captured by this kingdom of beauty, of justice-seeking, of, of joy and of worship and of celebration. But first and foremost, their hearts would be captured by the abundance of God's grace and mercy that they found at the cross. And this mercy launched these disciples in the power of the Spirit into a new and living relationship, which led them to live well and to live faithfully in their culture of decay and, and with all the challenges um, they faced, sharing their possessions, dedicating their lives, meeting together, centering their lives weekly, regularly in bread and, and wine and worship. It was the centering act of their life in and each other's homes. And this was all in a response to what they experienced in Christ. And they, they would also go into all the earth they wouldn't hold on to what they had. They would go and to reach out in the name of Jesus. 
and share what he had done. They heard the call in terms like this in Romans, in view of God's mercy, to offer their lives as worship. They'd offer their lives, their their bodies as living sacrifice, something holy and pleasing to God. They, They heard the call as, do not conform to the pattern of their world then that we are to hear now as as non-conformity to our world as we experience it today. They heard a high calling to live their lives faithfully and to be found in the world as blameless ones. And of course, in saying all of this, um, we need to avoid practically falling off the cliff in at least two different directions. One is, I guess, moralism that I'm saying like, this is about do good things and things will be well with you. Do good things and you can earn a relationship with God. Do good things and God will, you know, will, will, will give you the big thumbs up. That's not what we're talking about here. But equally what we're not talking about, this is not, there's grace, grace, so, so my actions don't really matter in the slightest. I can act how I want in the world. That, that's not what we find in the early Christians. And note in places, other places like where the apostle Peter and talks. He, he said in First Peter 2 and 3, there's no hint of embarrassment of, or, or fear or of legal, no embarrassment of telling instructions of how people need to live their lives and no fear of legalism in his somewhat pragmatic instructions. In First Peter 2, we have these sorts of instructions just to listen to these. Therefore, rid yourself of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. So, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. It talks about submitting yourself to uh, human authorities. You might want to put some caveats in there. It talks about living as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. It talks about families. It talks about culturally bound slaves in their day. It talks about a husband and wife's relationship in a culturally presented way, conversation for another day we've had. And, and it starts to get really particular with no embarrassment, no fears to say, in view of God's mercy, this looks like something quite profound. Um, and there's even the connection, if you track in First Peter 3, around chapter, or verse 20, to the way of living, uh, to this way of living that I just described, with the time of Noah. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It says this in, in verse 20, chapter 3, to those who are disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight and all, were saved through the water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's saying a lot of things, but the Apostle Peter interpreted the story of Noah with a baptismal quality. And this act of rescue was a gracious invitation to lay down the old life. To have the waters in its judgment wash it away, clean, judged, and stripped away by Jesus so that the new life in view of God's mercy, can, can reign, can live, and can have its expression. James 3.13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? 
Let them show it. Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. Note that in all I've just listed in the New Testament, God's mercy is presumed to lead to a different way of life. I, I think the church, always careful not to make massive statements, but it seems obvious enough to say, this is a let us show up, let us show up moment in the church. To, to be the people who have gazed and they have received the mercy and, and live differently in light of that. This is about discipleship with Jesus in the power and the life-giving spirit. This is how we live well in a culture that's moving in a different direction that will take us in a different direction unless we make some commitments. How is the church hearing that call today? Marks out of 10? <laughs> I don't know. I must confess, I feel on fear a certain lethargy that is upon the church, certainly in this part of the world at the minute. A lethargy that maybe needs challenge, maybe needs at least acknowledged. How is the church hearing that call? Think about how can we recall the urgency of, of what it means to be his church, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means for that to be central, not just a sideshow or an add-on. Well, how, how, what would that look like to, to get back to or to move forward into some of that? Um, it took me back to some of the Confessions of it that we sometimes say are baptisms. If you were baptized here, you would have said, I'll give you the short one, then I'll give you a Church of England long one. <laughs> they go to town a wee bit more than us Baptists. But if you get baptized at a little place, there's two questions you get asked. Is, do you believe in one God, Father and Son and Holy Spirit? And do you confess once again that Jesus Christ is your personal Savior and Lord? Yes. Um, Will you, with the power and help of the Holy Spirit, seek to live as a faithful follower of Jesus, obeying his word and sharing his love? And other traditions. Um, I, I heard this from Claire and I are moving house soon and, and we're going through a list of ins and outs, things that will make it into the new house and things that will not. Um, so for some reason I relate it to the Anglican um, baptism will quote it here anyway so in baptism God calls us out of darkness into his marvellous light to follow Christ means dying to sin and rising to new life with him therefore I ask do you reject the devil and all rebellion against God I reject them do you renounce the deceit and corruption of evil I renounce them do you repent of the sins that separate us from God and neighbour I repent of them do you turn to Christ as saviour I turn to Christ do you submit to Christ as Lord? I submit to Christ. Do you come to Christ the way, the truth, and the life? I come to Christ. These are decisive responses that if you're baptized, this is your baptismal call that you start with and to live out. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Decisive moments in our workplace, in our homes, in our churches, in our lives where we say he is first in view of everything he has done, 
and we do not build a culture of hearing but not doing, that is a culture of sickness unto death. Hearing and talking about all the stuff but not doing it. But we build a culture of hearing and lively response, I think is what God wants to build here among us. And it's a time to stop looking in at that and actually to jump in and participate, knowing that that means jumping into the mercy and grace that is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the goodness of coming home to him. Let's pray that we are found responding to him this day. We're going to approach the Lord's table after we sing this next song, but the first move will be, as we come to the table, is to look at the, the love of God that he has given his life for us. How much more will he not give us all things? Father, convince us to jump in again, knowing that giving up our life is actually the biggest discovery with you where we find ourselves as beloved ones. And God, we're so aware of our sinful nature at times, our desire to do what we want. Help us to gaze at Jesus just now. And just hear the voice of love speaking to us. And leading us towards life. May love lead us to decisive moments in our life. In Jesus' name.